This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is a Milestone London FinTech Podcast, episode number 200 brought to you in association with SMART and the enlistedboard.com. A lot, to put it mildly, has changed since episode 001 back in 2014. And the biggest picture, the Western world has gone totally nuts, destroying traditions and cultures that have lasted for centuries and employing previously inconceivable techniques, house-arresting whole populations over a virus whose fatality rate is in line with the flu and deploying injections that are the least safe ever, to put it mildly. The UK, for one, is now rolling this programme out to ever younger children who are not at risk. Evil stalks the world, for sure. However, we have covered this mega big picture in the 2020 LFP New Year special on the coup of the self-styled elites, and in the 2021 LFP New Year special Global Governance and the Plans for Technocratic Neo-Feudalism. We have also recently covered the vital, if you missed it, dive into the heart of FS in terms of what is its essence. What is the nature of money and where is it going? LFP 197, snappily entitled Money in the 21st Century, ballooning printing of fiat slash QE slash MMT slash government debt, CBDCs, crypto, de-dollarisation, hyperinflation and gold with Moneco 64, which has certainly proved prescient. So let's leave all that behind and dive into the deeper nature of technology. I get hundreds of incoming emails a month from PRs of technology companies, so I'm well acquainted with how technology is conceived and how it is portrayed. However, I feel there is a real lack of understanding of what it actually is. What connects the steam train with the latest fintech? Superficially, completely different, and superficially both will, in the linear progress of view of the world, make the world a better place, which they do to an extent. But importantly, that is only the tip of the iceberg most visible above the waterline. To take one simple example that is well known, social media is not just bad for people's mental health, but it's deliberately designed to be more addictive and less healthy. In the Matrix film, humans are harvested for energy whilst plugged into a later version of Zuckerberg's metaverse. In our world, humans are not harvested for electricity, but are harvested for attention, which is also in the euphemistic phrase monetized, i.e. sold. So what is technology? What can we learn from centuries of experience and the best thinkers on what it really is? Is it as simple as, well, it has benefits and of course there'll be some teething problems to be ironed out? Or do we, like interweb technologies perhaps, just pile layers and layers of technologies on top of each other to create a wobbling Tower of Babel? Is technology really value neutral? You know, the old, a knife can kill or cure argument. Or does it always lead humanity in a certain direction? Poetically put, is all technology just a Lilliputian thread constraining and conditioning the human soul that little bit more? What is the appropriate response? My argument is that we should not, and indeed cannot, be naively technophilic nor technophobic. However, where we draw the line needs to be a calculus based on a better and deeper understanding of what technology is and how it impacts human beings. The 2022 Neuro Special I'm pleased to say, received some great praise for its dive into what globalism actually is. 
The praise, however, did rather tend to come with, but there was so much content I'll have to listen to it again. So I guess, amazingly enough, carpet bombing as a podcasting technique produces a lot of fireworks, but little memory of each individual one. As a result, I shall limit myself severely in this special episode and aim to make it simpler, less comprehensive, and just pick out some key threads from more complex tapestries. There are many who have written deeply about technology, Lewis Mumford and Ivan Illich being but two major figures that I shall have to pass by. So this episode would not be a tour d'horizon, nor a tour de force, but a brief idea mining of two key books by two notable authors, both of whom connected technology with its deepest essence, technique. What is technology? What is technique? Now I mean, what are they really? What is the deeper essence that lies between you explaining to me how to make a steam train or write a Fortran programme? In 1931, Oswald Spengler wrote Der Mensch und die Technik. This relatively short book, a mere 84 pages, is clunkingly translated into Man and his Technics and subtitled A Contribution to a Philosophy of Life in English. A quick Google gives the frequency of translation of technic as being even between technology and technique. It is one of the first books, or rather I don't know of any earlier, to situate the nature of technology in technique as well as warning about the dangers that technology poses to culture. Interestingly for the LFP, Spengler lionises the vital role of the entrepreneur in society, as we shall see. The second book is a much longer, later work, which amplifies this technique-technology connection. Jacques Ellul wrote La technique ou l'enjou du siècle in 1954. Again, translations into English are clunky, the technological society being clearly not a translation of technique. A better translation might perhaps be technique or the dilemma of the century, which keeps the emphasis on its nature as a dilemma. Jacques Ellul was a super prolific writer who managed to write another 59 books in his lifetime, something I'm sure he couldn't have done, talking of modern technology's impact on the human being, if he'd spent all day on TikTok. We'll wrap up the show with some philosophical reflections on living in a super technological age. In writing this episode, I have certainly changed my position in one major respect, now regarding the technology is neutral in itself argument as only trivially correct. Sure, the outcome of a given technology tends to depend on the intent behind its use, basically whether that intent is pro-social or antisocial. However, even that trite perspective is not completely accurate. I'm not sure, for example, that the inventors of the Industrial Revolution intended to pollute the entire world. Technology has, at best, inbuilt, shall we say, bugs to be polite, which take a long time to surface. However, more philosophically than this, having contemplated Ellul and Spengler's arguments, it is now clear to me that technology per se always has a direction. It always tilts human society in this one direction. But funnily enough, this is something that our ancestors knew, and we, inhabitants of the very recent technological age, which is barely two centuries old, need perhaps to rediscover. So, before looking at what Messrs Spengler and Ellul thought about the nature of and philosophy of technology and technique, let's briefly touch on what our long-gone ancestors passed on to us in the way of their stories, tales, myths and legends, and linking this to a more prosaic consideration of technology as not being neutral. Section 2. Myths and Non-Neutrality Our ancestors embedded their wisdom in stories, tales, myths and legends. The telling of stories to the next generation 
was the vital way in which the culture of the tribe was maintained. Stories are a culture's DNA telling people how to live, how to be a Lakota or how to be a Maasai, and passing on the accumulated wisdom of generations of Lakota and Maasai respectively to maintain those cultures by providing both a cultural identity and embedding in that all that is necessary to survive and thrive in that environment. In the interests of brevity, I will just dip into two of the major taproots of European culture, ancient Greece and the Bible. Hephaestus was the blacksmith of the gods and was lame or club-footed. He built metal robots to work for him and also created Pandora and her jar, Pythos being, by the way, not a box, it was Pandora's jar, not Pandora's box, which of course ended up being opened up and releasing all of the ills of the world. Pandora's curiosity reminds one of Eve's. I was interested to hear recently that the Syrian desert fathers believed that the fruit of the tree of knowledge was going to be given to Adam and Eve when they were ready for it. It was the premature eating of the fruit which led to the fall. This is an excellent metaphor for technology. In a parallel dimension, maybe there is a race of human beings on Earth who maintain the perspective of certain Native American tribes and consider the impact of any decisions on the next seven generations to come. In such a society, they would only introduce, say, printing presses or social media when they've done the cost-benefit analyses, when they've considered the outcome on society, and when they've ironed out the inevitable downsides of new techniques slash technologies. Such a parallel universe of human beings would, for sure, perceive us as being insanely hasty. We are definitely the let's-give-this-a-go species. We press the button, and then we find out what the consequences are by living through them. Mind you, come to think of it, there are some of those beings living on Earth right now in the form of the Mennonite communities in North America. Better known, perhaps, as the Amish subgroups, they totally consider the impact of technology on their society, their culture and their people. Curiously, it even appears that doing this over the centuries has made them more stable, more sane and a happier community. That's funny. A notable example recently was their consideration and rejection of a well-known injection, along with Nyon refusing to allow sick family members to be isolated in hospitals, believing that being surrounded by caring friends and family is a major source of comfort and speeds recovery. And to think that the Amish are often portrayed as being odd. We are surely the odd ones. Talking of biblical traditions, cities were created by the sons of Cain, he who topped his brother out of jealousy. In the extra-canonical Book of Enoch, man is taught technology, for example metallurgy, by demons, by fallen angels. I'm not sure of any connection here, but in Northern European mythology, dwarves, those who mine beneath the earth and produce technology, often have a dual-edged nature, being powerful but not always to be trusted. So, even a brief reflection shows us that our ancestors, thousands of years ago, were aware of, shall we say, the trickster nature of technology that man hastens to it all too rapidly, being more full of curiosity than wisdom, and that technology comes to us from not entirely benevolent sources. Moving on from mythology to a more prosaic examination of the concept that technology is not neutral per se, we should note that technology always seems to lead to a centralisation of its power in the hands of a few, not the many, along with an omnipresent trend, whatever the technology, to give power to people ever further away from you and your community geographically. Two notable hat tips from English social history of resistance to technology go to the Luddites and the Fen Tigers. The latter 
having conducted a pretty successful guerrilla war for centuries to stop and to slow down the draining of the fens. But in terms of the centralising nature of new technologies, we could equally fast forward to Bitcoin, which was deliberately designed to avoid centralisation, but has ended up being concentrated in a handful of Chinese mining entities. It is a cliche to say that technology is a double-edged sword, a knife being able to kill or in the hands of a surgeon cure. We equally all know that one of society's problems now is not perhaps digital technologies per se, but, like all new technologies, man ends up with greater power and many of the problems we see right now are caused by this power being grabbed by bad actors, be it gazillionaire owners of social media platforms who want to make yet more money by driving people ever deeper into mental anguish and who want more power by tilting the results of elections just because they can. Or, on the other hand, politicians who, enabled by technology, this couldn't have happened in an Anglo-Saxon village, for example, report upwards and conspire globally to house arrest their populations and reduce them to a technological neo-feudalism. But this power grab angle is only part of the equation. As I've oft lionised on this podcast, Ian McGillchrist has got this sorted. I saw recently that his Master and the Emissary book was called by John Cleese the most important book he'd ever read in his life. And in passing, there were some excellent YouTubes of those two in conversation. Real old-school Brits. Technology embeds technique, which we'll now turn to in the words of Spengler and Elul. The deepest reason for technology's non-neutrality is to put it simply that it makes us more left-brained. It hands our power to the emissary, not the master in terms of our right hemisphere. Something that gives us a clue for our wrap-up section about living as a rounded human being in a technological age. To briefly summarise, for those of you who haven't heard me refer to McGillchrist before, he writes that in all creatures, the left hemisphere is about detail, precision, pieces. It is Newtonian, atomistic. It only sees what it expects to see and is very clear about its conclusion. It is not in touch with reality at all, but only with its own representation of reality, which it mistakes for reality, and which turns out to be remarkably self-enclosed. It's the world of the bureaucrat and the regulator. The right hemisphere is all about context, flow, whole, modern quantum, in principle uncertain, impossible to entirely isolate individual components from each other. Things change according to context and the way they're observed, sustaining an idea over time, uniqueness, human beings are ever-flowing, ever-changing, ambiguity, indirect, implicit, non-verbal, metaphors, tone of voice. It has a feel for everything, but knows everything can never be pinned down, defined, constrained, categorised. It is wise, but knows you can never define wisdom. It is the far more human half of our brains. Furthermore, to the ever-increasing acceleration of technocratic insanity and implosion of the human soul, witness the epidemic of mental health crises. There is a feedback loop at work here. The more that we engage with ever more omnipresent technology, the more we are required to lean towards left brain modes of being. For the past two years, I have had to come to my desk and turn a computer on rather than meet a human being. The very act of using a computer of quotes meeting unquotes people as just a bunch of pixels on a screen pushes me and everyone else ever more into left brainism and away from what might call the nature of beingness, existence, 
the real real, not the tools. Opponents of the machine culture that is eating us alive portray technology as a thing, but so do its proponents. For example, Kevin Kelly, the co-founder of Wired and the author of a book entitled What Technology Wants, writes, The technium wants what we design it to want and what we try to direct it to do, but the technium has its own wants. It wants to sort itself out, to self-assemble into hierarchical levels, just as most large, deeply interconnected systems do. The technium also wants what every living system wants, to perpetuate itself, to keep itself going. And as it grows, those inherent wants are gaining in complexity and force. I know this claim sounds strange. It seems to anthropomorphise stuff that is clearly not human. But want is not just for humans. Your dog wants to play frisbee. With the technium, want does not mean thoughtful decisions. I don't believe the technium is conscious at this point. Its mechanical wants are not carefully considered deliberations, but rather tendencies, a compulsion towards something. The millions of parts push the whole technium in certain unconscious directions. His books aim at empowering the reader to surf these waves of technology for their advantage. And whilst not being naively technophilic, they definitely come from having drunk the valley's Kool-Aid and being embedded in its success. As he writes, This is not a race against the machines. If we race against them, we lose. This is a race with the machines. You'll be paid in the future based on how well you work with robots. Which certainly reminds me of the phrase from a well-known film, I choose the opposite. Section 3. Spengler. So, having seen that our ancestors were wise enough to beware the technological gifts of the gods slash angels slash dwarfs slash snake, and having argued that man's will to power condenses the danger of every new wave of technology into the hands of a few, and that there is an accelerating feedback loop of moving ever further from absolute beingness, the power of the now, Tao, or whatever phrase that takes your fancy, Let's move on to Spengler and then Elul and then wrap up. This seems a good point to link our prior section with this on Spengler with a quote from Kidd's 2012 essay Oswald Spengler, Technology and Human Nature. Quotes. At present, when the technologization of food, healthcare, recreation and all else has grown unabated, Spengler's warning that we will be enslaved by techniques which we still narrowly interpret as practical labour-saving devices rather than as powerful cultural forms, seems all the more prescient. Finally, his treatise on techniques underscores the need for a philosophy of technology to assume a more prominent role in our current academic philosophical discourse. Writing his chief oeuvre, The Decline, I prefer Twilight, of the West during the industrialised technological slaughter of World War I, Spengler published Man and Technics late in the fated Weimar Republic in 1931. He was no fan of Herr Hitler, which feeling was reciprocated with Spengler's final book, A Critique of National Socialism, being later banned by the uh, National Socialists. Spengler passed away in 1936. Just as a quick recap for those that missed the 2021 LFP Newer Special. He was, as I've noted before, following on from Nietzsche, in this sense of German pessimism, consequential upon Gott ist tot, or in Spenglerian terms, all high cultures, eight in his estimation, arise due to an underlying metaphysic, European civilizations being in, in his analysis Faustian. Western man is a proud but tragic figure because while he strives and creates, 
he secretly knows the actual goal will never be reached. Goethe was a major influence on Spengler and Goethe's Faust makes a pact with the devil, which helps explain this quote. A quote from Spengler. The Faustian West European culture is probably owing to the inward conflict between its comprehensive intellectuality and its profound spiritual disharmony, the most tragic of them all. Faustian man is after ever expanding into infinite space, according to Spengler. An obvious example of expansion allied to a pact with the devil in return for technology being Europeans' global conquest. This was successful purely due to Faustian man's superior command of technology. So, for example, if the Spanish had arrived in South America and met locals who had Gatling guns, the rest of history would have been rather different. This infinite expansion vibe also predicts European man's expansion into space and landing on the moon, and in our time, the desire to expand into a metaverse. We might go further and point to the removal of all boundaries, whether they be national or even one's innate biological makeup. Western man, like all the major civilizations, like a hero in a Greek tragedy, was always inevitably going to be undone by his fundamental flaw, in this case, the pact with the devil. Europe had it good for a few centuries, but the devil is definitely returning now, not just to claim your firstborn, but you and all your offspring. Poetically put, in this context, the multipolar world that is developing definitely has a flavour of sauve qui peut. May other civilization states save themselves from going down with the sinking below the waves of a gigantic Titanic. Of course, the rest of the world too has been tempted and contaminated by the forbidden fruit in a similar way to how in the Europeans inadvertently took smallpox to North America. Inevitability is naturally a Spenglerian theme. No civilizations can avoid their destiny. Indeed, one might argue that Western civilization's attempt to do this is only hastening its collapse. The tiny few in Washington and the World Economic Forum who are filling their boots are like passengers on the Titanic, attempting to grab any silver they can while they rush for the lifeboats. As Spengler says, In reality, however, it is out of the power either of heads or hands to alter in any way the destiny of machine techniques. For this has developed out of inward spiritual necessities and is now correspondingly maturing towards its fulfilment and end. Today we stand on the summit at the point when the fifth act is beginning. The last decisions are taking place. The tragedy is closing. Spengler had no doubt that the dynamics of our situation were on autopilot. This written in 1931. The belief in techniques almost becomes a materialistic religion. As he said in The Decline of the West, culture is ever synonymous with religious creativeness. Faustian man's ascent and inevitable descent was in this shift from the religion of Christianity to the religion of science. Follow the science is the modern priest's archetypally identical version of medieval popes follow God. In both cases, of course, the highest priest claims a unique relationship and insight into the ultimate metaphysical principle. It's a matter of pure detail whether the high priest's label society's accepted transcendent as God or as science. And, as we unsurprisingly see in both cases, the will to power is evident here, which will encompass any amount of blatant corruption, whether it be papal indulgences or the so-called noble lies that have killed countless people in the past two years. 
Who will rid us of these turbulent priests? Who will be the modern Luther nailing his theses to the doors of science? For Spengler, the transition between, in academic terms, scholasticism, where learning was related to religion and either contemplation or endless debate, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin, to the practical experimentation of the enlightened universities with their ever-growing departments of science, represented a phase change from contemplation to action. In terms of this Borg-like machine that we create that ends up eating us alive, a subject of many a science fiction work, Spengler says, all things organic are dying in the grip of organisation. The civilization itself has become a machine. This is Max Weber's world of rationalisation and our world of infinite regulations, laws, codes and things the lower 99.999% must obey and the top 0.0001% in power routinely ignore. It is super important to point out that Spengler wasn't down on technology and those who create it. Far from it, he saw them as the prima motor. He had something interesting to say in the context of entrepreneurs. Quotes, All great discoveries and inventions spring from the delight of strong men in victory. They are expressions of personality and not of the utilitarian thinking of the masses who are merely spectators of the event, but must take its consequences whatever they may be. This is, in the terms of those days, the great man theory of history. And when I was a lad, by the way, man in this context meant human, not human male. So, for example, in terms of England's rise from nothingness, the most influential single great man was, in my estimation, Elizabeth I. As the saying goes, the reasonable man adapts himself to society, whilst the unreasonable man adapts society to himself. However it is, in this picture, only the unreasonable man who ever changes society for better or for worse, of course. And Spengler located the final twilight in the 2000s, pretty accurate so far, with Caesarism, i.e. dictatorship arising and leading to the final collapse of Western civilization. Seems pretty accurate in 2022 with all this WEF slash net zero and so forth oddity. The translator's preface to Man and His Technics in English highlights Spengler's angle on the lack of balance in our civilization in comparing entrepreneurs to other genres in society. If the entrepreneur is the great man slash human of our time who stands aloft, this equally points to the lack of great men humans, why isn't it human in passing, in other vital areas of a flourishing and indeed fully human society. Quotes, Whereas the superior human being in bygone times could have been an artist or a religious leader, Spengler underscores that in our present civilization, it is the grand entrepreneurs, the inventors and the engineers and the immensely complex technical system in the making, who will be able to claim this distinction. John D. Rockefeller, Henry Ford and J.P. Morgan in the United States and Alfred Krupp in Germany were to him emblematic figures, symbolising the cold, calculating rationality and organisational powers of modern, thoroughly urbanised people, perfectly adapted to the soulless industrial demands of their era. Likewise, a single Nikola Tesla or Thomas Edison rages light years above thousands of contemporary intellectuals and artists. Spengler's admiration for these kinds of people, however, is not tantamount to an unreserved and, at the bottom, unphilosophical adulation of grand-scale capitalism for its own sake. In his scheme, a person like Henry Ford is to modern civilization what Pharaoh Chops was to early Egyptian culture, a person capable of applying the relevant technique and vast labour organisation to immense and hitherto unimaginable projects. Hence the importance such grand-scale operations have 
for the spiritual symbolism of a particular culture. It follows from Spengler's definition of work, technique and organisation that individuals capable of harnessing others for their own grandiose purposes and of organising them in relation to cultural goals of lasting importance are the true leaders of humanity, swaying the masses, preachers and politicians to their tunes. Interestingly, Spengler felt that the export of European technologies to the rest of the world would in the end lead to, in essence, those technologies being used to outcompete the West. Something we see in spades, of course, right now, with roughly everything of value being produced in East Asia these days. In Faustian man's unlimited desire to infinitely expand, in this case, we see expansion in terms of moving on from minor matters of industrialization. What could possibly go wrong, methinks, as the news fills itself with so-called supply chain problems? Back to old school, unexpanded localism, there were no supply chain problems when the butcher, the baker and the candlestick maker all operated on the high street. We need to note Spengler's innate use of the evolutionary angle, his whole morphology of civilizations being to treat them as growing, then dying organisms. As a philosopher, Spengler has much to say about this connection between technique and technology that I pointed to earlier. As he says, lions use technique in chasing and catching their prey. So technique is not the sole preserve of mankind. However, lions can only utilize innate techniques. The fundamental difference is that man can create new techniques and therein lies the rub. Lions over time have evolved new techniques as their prey to evolve new techniques. These techniques in the case of animals are embedded allegedly in the DNA or perhaps more likely in the relevant morphic field. And in this Darwinian world, some mutations of lion slash technique don't make it and some do. Compared to the leisurely and the stable evolution of lions and gazelles strategy, the dynamics of human technological evolution are anything but stable. Ever since we started creating machines that could create machines with industrialization, we have stepped on the evolutionary fast forward button big time. Lions two centuries ago were pretty similar to today, but man is not. Man stores his latest great idea of technique embedded in technology, or laws, regulations, stories, and much more. In the digital case, technique isn't even embedded in physical objects, but into a non-physical, more abstract realm. There goes Faustian man again, always stretching the boundaries into new spaces. And European thinking having colonized almost the whole world, it needed to move beyond physical space. But back to the fast forward button having got stuck on. If you lived in, say, the 12th century, pretty much anywhere on the planet, your great-grandparents could tell you pretty much all you needed to know about life and what to do to thrive and survive, the rate of change being relatively low. Humanity thus, as a gross simplification, always had time to adapt relatively smoothly to new techniques and technologies, which to put it mildly, we do not in the 21st century. We're dragged backwards through hedges at a vast speed. This how do we cope angle leads nicely onto another precy from the translator's preface on the practical import for us human beings. Quote, the question of how to either play an active role in a Western tragedy entering its final act or to lamentably perish as a passive victim of the universal mechanization that is to be its general theme is at the heart of man and his techniques. Section four, Jack Ellul. Curiously, Ellul's elaboration of technique and technology is rarely related to Spengler's elaboration two decades prior. Almost as if, for some reason, 
French reviewers in the early 1950s didn't like to refer to good ideas coming from Germans. Elul himself credits his introduction to the idea to a conversation with Charbonneau in 1935. Aldous Huxley was a great fan of the French philosopher-come-sociologist Jacques Ellul, saying that Ellul was, quote, making the case I tried to make in Brave New World. Ellul published La Technique ou l'enjeu du siècle, Technique or the Dilemma of the Century, in 1954. Ineptly entitled in its English translation as The Technological Society, Ellul was much more focused on how we make technique sacred, be it in technology or in domains such as government or psychotherapy. As Ellul argues, humanity lives in a world of technique, not nature, especially in cities, which increasingly exclude all but a token presence of the natural. Quote, technique has become the dominant factor in the Western world, so that the best name for our society is the technicist society. It is on technique that all other factors depend. Technique is no longer some uncertain and incomplete intermediary between humanity and the natural milieu. The latter is totally dominated and utilised in Western society. Technique now constitutes a fabric of its own, replacing nature. A further quote. Technique has penetrated the deepest recesses of the human being. The machine tends not only to create a new human environment, but also to modify man's very essence. The milieu in which he lives is no longer his. He must adapt himself, as though the world were new, to a universe for which he was not created. He was made to go six kilometres an hour, and he goes a thousand. He was made to eat when he was hungry and to sleep when he was sleepy. Instead, he obeys a clock. He was made to have contact with living things, and he lives in a world of stone. He was created with a certain essential unity, and he is fragmented by all the forces of the modern world. Look at a young person in a coffee shop today, and you will see someone lost in the world of technique, in a virtual world of stimulus response. Elu was not against technology per se, but against the underlying state of mind, as it were, that is best embodied in technology, hence my linking to McGilchrist on brain anatomy. James Fowler, in his 2000 A Synopsis and Analysis of the Thoughts and Writings of Jacques Elu, emphasised that there has been much misunderstanding of Elu in the English-speaking world as a result of the poor translation of technique into technology in the title, the two words being neither the same in French nor in English. Quotes, Alul's issue was not with technological machines, but with a society necessarily caught up in efficient methodological techniques. Technology, then, is but an expression and byproduct of the underlying reliance on technique, on the proceduralization whereby everything is organised and managed to function most efficiently and directed towards the most expedient end of the highest productivity. Fowler continues. But the place of technique began to change dramatically in the 18th century with a quest for efficient procedures to find the one best means in every human endeavour. By the 19th century, the bourgeoisie recognised technique as the key to their material and commercial interests. The industrialised technical employment of technique became a monster in the urbanised and technological society of the 20th century, the stake of the century, as Elul termed it. Technique became the defining force, the ultimate value of a new social order in which efficiency was no longer an option but a necessity imposed on all human activity. Technique became universally totalitarian in modern society as rationalistic proceduralism imposed an artificial value system of measuring and organising everything quantitatively rather than qualitatively. 
Like cancer in a living organism, the systematization of technique pervades every cell of our modern technical and technological society. Importantly for us as human beings though, we tend towards a complete misunderstanding of technique and technology for that matter. Fowler summarizes here the angle that I see time and time again in the incoming emails to pitch to be on the LFP, rampant technophilia of the most naive kind. Quotes. The subtle illusion of this invasive methodology of technique is that people view technology as the liberator of mankind, the operational instrument that sets them free from natural function. In complete contrast, Elul says that the opposite is the case. Technique enslaves people while proffering them the mere illusion of freedom, all the while tyrannically conforming them to the demands of the technological society with its complex of artificial operational objectives. A statement I should remember when I end up having to do an episode in a year or two on recently introduced CBDCs and why, giving central banks and politicians, the ability to program your currency and control your spending is not the wonder that they are telling you, but an unprecedented disaster. Work hard, earn money, have most of it stolen from you in taxes, and then be controlled on how you spend the rest and have it deleted if you support Canadian truckers. Elul, I think, would have been surprised not in the slightest. I won't make any facile points from either a technophobic or technophilic perspective, but put it this way, pre-laptops and mobile phones, life and business were way calmer and with a shadow of a doubt, mental health was way, way better and society is more stable. But there's of course a technological solution to that, allegedly, as Paul Wilk writes in an article entitled Jacques Ellul Technique and the Digital Age, quotes, Ellul worried that the end result would be a gradual erosion of human individuality, spontaneity would slowly vanish, and we would end up the tools of our tools instead of the other way around. Ask yourself, are people in general happier today than before, even after all the advances in technology we've experienced since Ellul's time? Arguably, no, not at all. We can rightly claim that our lives are materially better than ever before in history, but we are still no happier, no matter how full our bellies or how warm our beds are. Famine, disease and war are now more remote than ever, but the existential angst remains. But don't worry, that's merely a problem for technique to solve. Unhappy? There's a pill for that. Too much anxiety? Another pill. Can't sleep? A pill. Too stressed to get an erection? No worries, a tiny pill will fix that. One in six Americans and Brits take medication for depression or anxiety, and that number is rising." Unquote. And in passing, the data on medications for depression is a shocker. It's almost like Big Pharma is more interested in infinite greed than in the health of human beings. Strange. We see the same insanity in the corruption of the ecological movement. As former activist Paul Kingsnorth, who was one of Britain's 10 most dangerous protesters back in the day, says, the whole thing has been captured by capitalism and technology. An infinite number of issues to do with the environment have been all collapsed into one, the climate scandemic, and the solution, of course, is more technology, solar panels and wind farms all over the place. And just as with COVID, calculating the real cost-benefit would not be good and is thus suppressed or ignored. All technology comes with attendant problems at a simple material level, let alone human level. I mean, put into context, we haven't even got over the Industrial Revolution's bugs yet, let alone the digital ones. And as for the great leap forward in comms technology, I just keep recalling the point that the great leap forwards of the printing press, clearly a leap with plenty of benefits, came with massive costs. It led to the creation of a new religion, Protestantism then, 
and wokeism now, which led back in the day to millions of deaths in religious wars. The effect of comms right now and longer term impact of wokeism is yet to be seen, although the short term impacts are hardly prepossessing. Furthermore, the printing press led to massive witch burning, Malleus Maleficorum, Hammer of the Witches being the text that went viral. And lo and behold, once again with a great leap forward in comms, we have hysterical mobs ready to cancel someone from their daily existence. To quote Elum, who was writing within a decade of America dropping that great technological leap forwards, the atom bomb, on Japanese cities. Particularly disquieting is the gap between the enormous power they, simply put technologists, wield and their critical ability, which must be estimated as null. To quote from Paul Wilk again, in this environment, technique almost resembles an independent force of nature like gravity, operating autonomously from our desires, always driving us towards maximum efficiency. Resistance is futile, well I've heard that before, but you don't want it any other way. It's just how things are, simple common sense. But not just that. More technique is always the answer to the problems that the last technique created. Apparently, for example, there are currently approximately 75,000 pages in the US Federal Tax Code. In 1913, it was originally 400 pages. In the UK, as I've mentioned before, Chancellors Brown and Osborne both promised simplification of the tax code, but between them managed to increase its length 12-fold as per the position of the Luddites and the Fen Tigers. Who benefits from all this? It certainly isn't ordinary Joe or ordinary Jane. Technique is also insidious. It is infinitely seductive. We are all Eve who can't resist the apple. Pandora who can't resist peeping into the jar. As Elul says, we are powerless in the face of technique and technology. Can you think of an example here where Amish accepted? Man thought, nah, better not open that door. This inability to just say no means that insidiously with every bite, freedom is removed. Elul says, the individual is in a dilemma. Either he decides to safeguard his freedom of choice, chooses to use traditional, personal, moral or empirical means, thereby entering into competition with a power against which there is no efficacious defence, before which he must suffer defeat, or he decides to accept technical necessity, in which case he will himself be the victor, but only by submitting irreparably to technical slavery. In effect, he has no freedom of choice. Elul, writing about another dimension of the use of technique against the masses and for the regime, wrote, quotes, Men fashion images of things, events and people, which may not reflect reality, but which are truer than reality. These images are based on news items, which, as in the case of much of the world, are faked. Their purpose is to form rather than to inform. Faking the news is systematically practiced by the Soviet radio, but the procedure is found to a lesser degree in all countries. All of us are familiar with the, quotes, innocent fraud of the illustrated newspapers in which a photograph is accompanied by an ambiguous caption. A shipyard, for example, is indifferently described as a plant in one of the democracies or in the Soviet Union or wherever. A great example, by the way, of this fakery recently, which some of you may have seen, was when an Israeli news source allegedly showing pictures fighting in Ukraine included a clip which eagle-eyed viewers noticed included a crashed Star Wars TIE fighter. In terms of this lack of freedom and the power it gives to the engineers of human souls, we have seen years of hysteria about the current thing, where the current thing is always changing 
and always defined by the regime and its propagandists. Ellul predated Guy Debord's excellent 1967 Society of the Spectacle, quotes, This kind of thing represents the first step towards a sham universe. It is also indicative of an important element in today's psychology, the disappearance of reality in the world of hallucinations. Men will be led to act on real motives that are scientifically directed and increasingly irresistible. He'll be brought to sacrifice himself in a real world, but for the sake of the verbal universe which has been fashioned for him. Which predates the whole Pravda 2.0 and a well-known virus. Alul writes also, Propaganda must not concern itself with what is best in man, the highest goals humanity sets for itself, its noblest and most precious feelings. Propaganda does not aim to elevate man, but to make him serve. It must therefore utilise the most common feelings, the most widespread ideas, the crudest patterns, and in so doing, place itself on a very low level with regard to what it wants man to do and to what end. Hate, hunger and pride make better levers of propaganda than do love or impartiality." Unquote. And also, quotes, if the ruler wants to play the game by himself and follow secret policies, he must present a decoy to the masses. He cannot escape the mass, but he can but draw between himself and that mass an invisible curtain, a screen on which the mass will see projected the mirage of some politics, while the real politics being made behind it." Unquote. Okay, you get the idea. Technique applies in all dimensions of the modern world. Sometimes it's embedded in communications, sometimes in politics, sometimes in regulations, laws and codes, and sometimes in gadgets, real or digital. But it is all pervasive. Just to conclude this section on Ellul's analysis of the nature of technique with some troubling quotes before we wrap up with some philosophical reflections on how we might live amidst all this technique and technology. For live within it, to some extent, we all must. It ain't going away anytime soon. And as we covered in the 2022 Neuro Special, technology is indeed on a cross between crack cocaine and steroids right now, as the globalists use it as they attempt to smash all tradition, cultures and societies, and introduce technocratic tyranny. A process in passing that Elul would have seen as inevitable and indeed foresaw. Quotes, there is a limited elite that understands the secrets of their own techniques, but not necessarily of all techniques. These men are close to the seat of modern government power. The state is no longer founded on the average citizen, but on the ability and knowledge of this elite. The average man is altogether unable to penetrate technical secrets or government organisation and consequently can exert no influence at all on the state. Three wrap-up quotes from Elul outline our existential challenge before we move on to the final section. Quotes. Enclosed within his artificial creation, man finds that there is no exit, that he cannot pierce the shell of technology again to find the ancient milieu to which he was adapted for hundreds of thousands of years. In our cities, there is no more day and night, or heat and cold, but there is overpopulation, thraldom to press and television, total absence of purpose. All men are constrained by means external to them to ends equally external. The further the technical mechanism develops that allows us to escape natural necessity, the more we are subjected to artificial technical necessities. Another quote. Modern technology has become a total phenomenon for civilization, the defining force of a new social order in which efficiency is no longer an option, but a necessity imposed on all human activity. And final quote, especially relevant for the homeschoolers out there. Quote. 
Education no longer has a humanist end or any value in itself. It has only one goal, to create technicians. Section 5, wrap up. I'd like to thank all you listeners out there and my brand partners of the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Okay, boy, takes deep breath. What does one do in such circumstances? Good question, well presented, answers on a postcard. Ultimately, humanity will have to wrestle with its latest new powers. And as with all prior great leaps forwards, Mm. learn to limit bad actors' abuse. A simple example being that we no longer have children up chimneys cleaning them. The trouble with the world, ultimately, is that processes like that can take a lifetime or lifetimes. And it is our lifetimes right now that matter to us. However, we're all individuals and not societies or civilizations. To take a metaphor, the North Atlantic definitely flows northeastwards, but individual molecules within it may be going in all sorts of idiosyncratic directions. And in the same way, we don't have to head in the same direction as our entire society. What we can practically do depends on our individual countries and circumstances and indeed ability to change countries. For sure, the new world order won't be precisely one size fits all. They didn't even manage that during the scandemic. There were definitely better and definitely worse places to be in. By an amazing synchronicity, having ridden up to this point yesterday, I retired to the sofa and turned on YouTube, my strongest technological edition and way to overload my brain, to find a discussion between two of my favourite thinkers right now, Paul Kingsnorth, who I mentioned, and Canadian icon carver turned symbolic commentator on the modern world, Jonathan Paget. It is entitled Civilization and Control if you want to check it out. After a mere one hour, 20 minutes of conversation, no conclusion was arrived at, but they have some ideas penciled in of plan Bs and plan Cs, somewhat in the context of a kind of off-grid nature. If the situation gets worse, the dissidents will, like the early Christians in their case, have to be somewhat outcast of societies. And off-grid in this context doesn't just mean growing your own potatoes, but off-grid in terms of not using CBDCs and creating communities and mutual, not financial, support. Spenglerian quote relates to off-grid, which is definitely a growing thing, as is homeschooling, the educational equivalent. We need to think very broadly in terms of what off-grid might become. Quote, The Faustian thought begins to be sick of machines. A weariness is spreading, a sort of pacifism of the battle with nature. Men are returning to forms of life simpler and nearer to nature. They're spending their time in sport instead of technical experiments. The great city is becoming hateful to them, and they would fain get away from the pressure of soulless facts and the clear, cold atmosphere of technical organisation. Off-grid in one form or another also reminds me of Julius Evler's Ride the Tiger, a survival manual for aristocrats of the soul. The tiger being too powerful right now to directly oppose it, either on its physical doorstep or its metaphorical doorsteps of YouTube and Twitter. Talking of Evola reminds me that if I hadn't been so disciplined, I could have nodded towards our Indo-Aryan heritage and yet another one of his books. Revolt against the modern world, politics, religion and social order in the Kali Yuga. It is unsurprising that Evola is popular in the ever-swelling dissident circles right now. Another of his titles being Men Among the Ruins, post-war reflections of a radical traditionalist 
written by the Italian just after World War II. But back to the big picture philosophical perspective. Yes, we are embedded in technique and technology. Yes, we make individual decisions and we'll live more or less off-grid depending on whether it gets far worse or not and indeed whether the machine is successfully opposed. Yes, we are in a period of rapid civilization decline, but as individuals, even in decline, we inherit the strengths of our culture and our ancestor and also the bugs in that code. Philosophically, what I feel we need to do is to leverage the strengths of our inheritance and look to sort the deficiencies. Naturally, we can't rely on Spengler for cheeriness, his basic line being that we're on an aeroplane which is destined to crash and burn. However, in terms of virtue ethics, the way, 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 way superior ethics to consumer ethics, Man and Technics ends with an Evola-like aristocratic call to do your duty, to die at your post, something plenty of our ancestors did. Quotes, we are born into this time and must bravely follow the path to the destined end. There is no other way. Our duty is to hold on to the lost position, without hope, without rescue, like the Roman soldier whose bones were found in front of a door in Pompeii, who, during the eruption of Vesuvius, died at his post because they forgot to relieve him. That is greatness. What it means to be a thoroughbred, the honourable end, is the one thing that cannot be taken from a man. A further example of this approach from before Spengler's writing would have been the band on the Titanic, who in the end stopped moving their seats and just played on. This first positive angle is embedded in tradition, what worked well, what our cultural values were. For the British of my day and before, there are plenty of cultural values, Aristotelian virtue ethics that obtain and I try and honour my ancestors by living by them. It's interesting to note that when I was at school, consumerism and gross materialism wasn't a thing, and for the great masses, never had been for the entirety of history. England was pretty poor after being bankrupted by America. We'd given them all of our gold and money by 1941, and had to borrow from them thereafter. At the end of the war, Keynes assured the incoming Labour government, who were gobsmacked to find the parlous state of their finances, especially as they promised so much. He assured them that he would get this written off, but America and the banksters said no, and rationing lasted longer in Britain than anywhere else. When I was very young, I still recall playing on bomb sites. The 70s were also a decade of economic disaster. No one had much money to shop, and besides, it was rather déclassé to be too focused on stuff. My school song, for example, included the line, Die of service, not of rust. No mention of die of making loads of money and shopping in malls. We all have ancestral values of importance in this way. Not only that, but due to childhood programming, we all have those virtues programmed within us at an early age. Over time, I've come to feel that there is a lot of power in our innate ancestry. If we have within us the strength of our traditions and ancestors, then naturally we inherit the bugs in their code. As Spengler said, the biggest imbalance for Faustian man is his spiritual displacement. The key for Elul was the meaning crisis, one which is only far worse now than in the 1950s, quotes Elul. No one knows where we are going. The aim of life has been forgotten. The end has been left behind. Man has set out at a tremendous speed to go nowhere. Our civilization is first and foremost a civilization of means. In the reality of modern life, the means, it would seem, are more important than the ends. Elul himself was a Christian anarchist, and as such, his religion and belief were way more important for him as a raison d'etre than worldly matters such as technique and technology. Quotes, for in a civilization which has lost the meaning of life, the most important thing a Christian can do is to live 
and life, understood from the point of view of faith, has an extraordinary explosive force. It's important to note that any language and symbolic way of conceiving of the transcendent is only ever, to use the Zen metaphor, the finger that points at the moon. It is never the moon. In other words, plenty of folks, of course, who are not Christian also experience the extraordinary power of practical connection to the essence of beingness, or in neutral terms, Eckhart Tolle's power of now. McGilchrist quotes Einstein in agreeing also that we've lost the plot. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honours the servant and has forgotten the gift. McGilchrist, by the way, in case you're needing some light reading for the beach, has just published a phenomenal two-volume, 3,000-page of The Matter With Things, Our Brains, Our Delusions and the Unmaking of the World. Just in case you haven't got time for 3,000 pages, I shall read from the blurb, which, to be honest, is copied online. There's no way I can read that much. Quotes. Who are we? What is the world? How can we understand consciousness, matter, space and time? Is the cosmos without purpose or value? Can we really neglect the sacred and divine? In doing so, he argues, that we have become enslaved to an account of things dominated by the brain's left hemisphere, one that blinds us to an awe-inspiring reality that is all around us, had we but the eyes to see it. He suggests that in order to understand ourselves and the world, we need science and intuition, reason and imagination, not just one or two. They are, in any case, far from being in conflict, and that the brain's right hemisphere plays the most important part in each. And he shows us how to recognise the signature of the left hemisphere in our thinking, so as to avoid making decisions that bring disaster in their wake. Following the paths of cutting-edge neurology, philosophy and physics, he reveals how each leads us to a similar vision of the world, one that is profound and beautiful, and happens to be in line with the deepest traditions of human wisdom. It is a vision that returns the world to life, and us to a better way of living in it, one that we must embrace if we are to survive. For me, the most catastrophic and fundamental misstep in Western thought was a schism between science and religion, which did not happen in any other major civilization. Despite some accounts, it was made not for deep philosophical reasons at the time, but rather was a real politic, political solution for both the new scientists and the church to agree to keep each other's tanks off each other's lawns. Originally, they both paid each other their dues, especially after the church stopped burning people at the stake. Newton, for example, wrote far more on alchemy than he ever wrote on physics, and the Catholic Church was not as rapidly anti-science as often portrayed. Fast forward a few centuries, of course, and science is the new religion. However, having lived only on its material turf, and by cancel culturing the likes of Sheldrake and others who dissent too loudly, science says, in essence, my voltmeter shows that nothing that is not matter exists. A bizarre philosophical position. As to the church in England, the Church of England might as well just be another NGO. Its positions are identical. As a result, even more than in Spengler's and Ellul's time, we live in an utterly disenchanted universe. This is not just cultural poison, it is individual poison, and one amplified by technology's inbuilt direction, forcing us ever more to live more and more in a left hemisphere. We live in a spiritual desert, a world of materialism. As Paterium Sorokin, too, pointed out a century ago, materialism is always the end stage of civilizations. later Romans and Greeks, for example, abandoning beliefs in their gods, as their civilizations too nosedived. You can see why, if national governments have a belief 
in being judged in the afterlife or a belief in karma, say, whether this belief is ultimately true or not, it affects the behaviour. And for sure, the absence of any belief of being taken into account after your death frees many people from constraints. In terms of fixing this centuries-old schism, this bug, many Western folk have studied traditions way away from this tiny part of the world, whether this is ayahuascaing in the jungles of the Amazon, shamaning all over the world, Sufiing, all the Indian traditions, all the Chinese traditions, and many, many more. Fortunately, the rest of the world didn't copy Europe in schisming the investigation of existence into the world of matter and then saying the world of the soul, the world of consciousness, does not exist. Man is, as the Taoists say, heaven and earth in unity. In less poetic terms, what this means is that man is the combination of the substantial, the physical, and the insubstantial, consciousness. Hamlet was completely right when he said, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. This is back to areas McGilchrist points to in terms of the right brain. Ironically, the reason that so many modern folk do not experience phenomena beyond their own internal narrative is that they are in so contracted an egoic state that in my terms, their consciousness behaves more like a particle. They feel more like a billiard ball. They know inside their billiard ball. However, consciousness, in my metaphor, can also at times be a wave if you let it and if you stop chattering to yourself and as far as I can tell by direct personal experience as well as listening to all sorts of masters from around the world there are no obvious limits on what one is capable of perceiving however you ain't going to perceive anything staring at your gadget arguing with trolls online or when walking home when radio you is constantly blaring out a subtext to life inside your head be all that as it may, if Spengler, Elul, McGilchrist and my direct experience or anything to go by, then Westerners in particular and people from other parts of the world who have been overly poisoned by Western scientific materialism would be well placed to investigate some wisdom traditions or just Eckhart Tolle or perhaps read 3,000 pages of a philosophy book by McGilchrist and discover for themselves. Okay, right, let's recap 10 bullet points of the show. I've got there in the end, and you've got there in the end. Well done. Do write to me and let me know what you think. One, the ancient saw technology is powerful, but is something of a deceptive trick, always more dangerous than it first appeared and given to us by beings of at best mixed motivations. Two, Mennonites and Amish, as a notable exception. In the modern world, we are all teenagers, trying anything just because we can never with a wise consideration beforehand as to whether this is good for us or society. Three, technology's power always aggregates power in the hands of those who are power hungry, who rarely use it for the good of the community as a whole, but rather use it from a perspective of personal lust and greed for power and profit. Four, technology has always tended to move power from the local to the further away. Globalisation is just the reductio ad absurdum of this process, power being taken as far away from every local community as is physically possible. 5. Technology is not value neutral. Technology always moves us more to a left-brained, robotic way of being, far from a more real perception of reality, into a codified, narrow, constrained way of being. We move away from intuition, imagination, love, life, truth and beauty, 
and become ever more externally programmed and controlled. Six, both technophiles and technoskeptics conceive of technology as a thing. Ellul and Spengler view it as, in effect, a force of nature. But it is a force or a wind which blows in one direction only. Ideas that it doesn't affect us are woefully naive. It actually creates us. As Spengler says, all things organic are dying in the grip of organisation. The civilization itself has become a machine. Spengler points out that the power of the entrepreneur to create is laudable, but even almost a century ago, he saw this as reflecting a deficiency of what artists, intellectuals and religious leaders can offer anywhere near the same level of performance. 7. We evolve with our techniques and technologies. However, for the past two centuries, and accelerating the 21st century, there is a dangerous feedback loop ever accelerating the rate of change of technology before we have even sorted out the bugs in the century before last technology. This dizzying whirlwind puts on steroids the ability of a few to indulge in insane degrees of greed and will to power and to rule over us. 8. Ellul was less concerned with technology per se than with technique leading to ever greater levels of rationalisation, bureaucratisation and disenchantment, to use some Weber terms, which was accelerating Europe's move away from anything remotely spiritual and in a direction of nihilism and becoming tools of our tools. In no sense did he see technique or technology as value neutral. Technique, as he said, enslaves people while preferring them the mere illusion of freedom, all the while tyrannically conforming them to the demands of the technological society with its complex of artificial operational objectives. 9. Ellul's concern with the advance of technique encompasses the creation of a world of images by those in power to create a sham universe for their subjects. As he says, quotes, Propaganda does not aim to elevate man, but to make him serve. 10. Spiritually, as Ellul saw it, quotes, Enclosed within his artificial creation, man finds that there is no exit, that he cannot pierce the shell of technology again to find the ancient milieu to which he was adapted for hundreds of thousands of years. Finally, I wrapped up with reflections that along with the ongoing day-to-day -day challenge we all have with our surrounding technologies and ongoing radical changes in governance and economics, we inherit both the strengths of our ancestors and also the bugs in their code. For the modern man, the main bug is nihilistic materialism, purposelessness, meaninglessness. The way out of this impasse for many is to step outside modern-slash-European ways and learn the wisdom traditions from different parts of the world, authentically sourced and diligently practised under wide guidance. These lead the individual to an ever greater ability to transcend and include the material, which state of being is radically different. It is possible to move in the opposite direction. Live long and prosper. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride